I'm going to read uh, our first passage from Isaiah chapter 65. For I will create a new heaven and a new earth. The past events will not be remembered or come to mind. Then be glad and rejoice forever in what I am creating. For I will create Jerusalem to be a joy and its people to be a delight. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will no longer be heard in her. In her, a nursing infant will no longer live only a few days, or an old man not live out his days. Indeed, the youth will die at a hundred years, and the one who misses a hundred years will be cursed. People will build houses and live in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build and others live in them. They will not plant and others eat. For my people's lives will be like the lifetime of a tree. My chosen ones will fully enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labour without success or bear children destined for disaster, for they will be a people blessed by the Lord along with their descendants. Even before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, but the serpent's food will be dust. They will not do what is evil or destroy on my entire holy mountain, says the Lord. I've got two readings from Revelation now, first from chapter 18 and then from chapter 21. After this, I saw another angel coming down, coming down from heaven. He had great authority and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice, he shouted, Fallen! Fallen is Babylon the Great! She has become a dwelling for demons and a haunt for every impure spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable animal. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxury. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. For her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. Give back to her as she has given. Pay her back double for what she has done. Pour her a double portion from her own cup. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of water of life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Our dear Lord, we do thank you for your scriptures, for your word. 
We pray now, Lord, that you will, by your spirit, work in us, Lord. Help us to understand. Help us to listen. And Lord, would you transform us as we hear your word and wrestle with it and uh, come to an understanding of it. Would you give us understanding and faith? In the name of Jesus, amen. George Frederick Handel really did get the content and the tone of the gospel right in the Hallelujah Chorus, didn't he? All kingdoms have become Christ's kingdom. All power handed back to the Creator, and he shall reign forever and ever. Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him the glory. Amen. Today we come to the final stop in our series in God's mega story, our grand tour through the Bible from beginning to end. A long train journey, and we've arrived at the end which conveniently is the theme of the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. We started the journey in the first book of the Bible and we'll end it in the last book of the Bible. We started at the beginning of all things, which of course predates the book of Genesis. And we end at the renewal of all things, which of course extends beyond Revelation. The story therefore begins and ends with a transcendent God made known imminently in his creation and in this story, this mega story. In Revelation 21, Jesus says, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Three points today in your downloaded outline. Firstly, the end. Secondly, how to describe the end. And thirdly, how to stand firm until the end. First, the end. John Donne famously asked in one of his holy sonnets, what if this present were the world's last night? In other words, what if you knew that the world as we know it ended tonight? How would you respond? How would we collectively respond? With panic? With hoarding? Would there be anticipation, hope, fear? The Apostle Peter tells us how to respond when he writes, The end of all things is near, therefore be alert and sober-minded so that you can pray. The very thing Jesus said to his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. That word end is important. It doesn't mean somehow the moment the earth blows up. And there's nothing more after that, not end in the sense of final, the final thing, but rather it is the end in the sense of the goal. In the original language, the word end is the Greek word telos, the telos of all things is near, meaning the goal, the plan, the purpose, the intention of God. God's purposes for the world are just around the corner, is what Peter is saying. That means that God's goal for the world is not life as we know it, that's good news. Not love as we know it with conflict, bad governments, broken promises, pornography, frustration, pandemics, lockdown. God's plan for the world is not mirrored in the fall of Kabul. No. Jesus said the kingdom of God is at hand. God's about to do something amazing. Repent and believe the gospel God is going to put the world to rights. John Dixon, who's going to be with us for the next three weeks, invite a friend. 
He says, anyone who has ever wished for the world to become a better place has, in some sense, wished for the kingdom of God. Jesus called that moment of the end, he called it the renewal of all things. And to all people suffering and, and unable to see with their own eyes this hope, the risen Jesus says, I am making everything new. In other words, the end is not the end of everything, but rather the end of all old and wrong things. And so the end, rather, is the beginning of all new things. This is God's intention for the world that he's made. Get a little sense of this in the movie The Truman Show. Jim Carrey plays Truman Burbank, who's a reality TV character, and he doesn't know it. He's the star of a show since birth. A world has been created for him, uh, but he's in a form of slavery, beautiful slavery. Sylvia is a sometime character in the reality show, but she spends her time outside of the show in the real world, and she wants to free Truman, and she wears this badge. How is it all going to end? And yet the end of the show is Truman's beginning. I think I can issue a spoiler for a 25-year-old film. Truman truly starts his life at the end of the movie when he walks out of the set. The end, therefore, is the new beginning, a free life. So when Christians ask, how is it going to end? What we mean is, what is the new life that God has planned for us from the beginning? There are, in contrast, at least three versions of the end that are circulating the world today. And they're all concluded by observation, not by revelation. And they all are end as in finality, not goal. The first way the world will end is it'll end in a billion years when the sun what is it, cools and grows and swallows the earth. We won't be there for it. Turns out that only Doctor Who can take you there for the aficionados. That's the first way. The second way is that the world ends when we destroy it, either in nuclear war or by human-made climate change. The third way is a personal one. It's where you say, as far as I'm concerned, the world ends when I end. In the same way the world will be swallowed by the sun in a billion years, I'll be swallowed up by death in the near future, well, in the relative near future, and there's nothing I can do about either. It's all pretty bleak. And into those bleak realities, we have a gospel that we speak. And embedded in that gospel is God's goal for his creation through Jesus Christ the Messiah. And the book of Revelation, indeed the whole mega story, is about that end. It's about Jesus Christ's place in that end. The book of Revelation says a few things in a profound way, like this. Despite all the muck, despite the fact that the Roman government is on your door, ready to take your life and make you captive. Despite all that, Jesus Christ is currently Lord and has your interest 
your interest now and your future in his hands. That means that Caesar is not Lord. In fact, Caesar, Rome, is described as a beast to be thrown into the fire. And yet Revelation says Christ will come again in glory to judge the quick and the dead and to restore all things to their rightful place before a God who made the world. And to, res- and, and to raise the world from the dead like his own resurrection. And so in the book of Revelation we learn to wait patiently, to stay standing firm till the end, and to live in hope, which is why we regularly say we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Well, that's the end. Secondly, then, how to describe the end. Well, the future that God has planned for the world is indescribable. It's global, it's universal, it's glorious, it's new. The future God has for the world is too big for words. We'll need pictures. The Apostle Paul writes, however, as it is written, in Isaiah the prophet, we'll come to that in a moment, however, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, the things that God has prepared for those who love him. Paul is quoting Isaiah the prophet during the time of exile. Since no ancient times, since ancient times, No one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. So what has God got planned for those who wait for him, those who love him? Well, he has a whole new world in mind. Isaiah 64, See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, for they will not, nor will they come to mind. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people, the sound of weeping and crying will be heard in it no more. John is quoting Isaiah in Revelation 21. Listen for the links. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. That's the quote. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, not the old one with its conflict, coming out of heaven from God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne, Jesus said, I am making everything new. This is the renewal of all things. So this future isn't just an idea that popped into John's head on the island of Patmos. It's not just that he wants to believe in a better place. This is not wishful thinking. And this is not, as some have said, John's acid trip. No, the book of Revelation is John, or rather the Spirit of God, revealing to John the end of the mega story. See, God made the world, and he wants it back. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and power, for you created all things. And he made a promise to Abraham, that he'd fix the world, bless it, through Abraham's seed, his descendant, we know him as Jesus, and he did that in the land that God promised to Abraham. He sets up a pattern of redemption in the Exodus, free from slavery and a path out of oppression, setting people free, but not just out from oppression, but also towards the land that God promised to Abraham in the conquest, a land in which they were to live with God as king, to 
love him and worship him and obey him and to serve and to protect others. God gave them an anointed one, a Messiah in David, but as you and I know, David fell far short and so did his successors. And so God takes them down in 587 BC, down into a death of sorts. In just judgment, they go into exile, away from home. It turns out that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, not just the bad people surrounding me. The exile is a death first with a promise of resurrection, which is why the Messiah had to die and why the Messiah had to rise again to bring the whole ruined world with him. But it is during the period of the exile you, that you get the grand promises of God. They're too big to describe the new heavens and the new earth. The exile is the context, even under Roman oppression, in which Jesus bursts in on the scene and says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus is the high point. Jesus is central station. All tracks lead to him and all tracks go from him. God came, he redeemed us, he saved us, he conquered sin and Satan and death itself, and Jesus is now risen and reigning as Lord. This is a gospel and the one that Paul preached to the world. So can you see it when John wrote the revelation on the island of Patmos in the end of the first century? He's not writing junk. He's not writing stuff that popped into his mind like he is some sort of verbal graffiti artist. No, John is drinking deep of the promises of God when he writes by the hand of the Spirit, then I saw a new heavens and a new earth. That's where it all ends. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord in the same way that the waters cover the sea. That's God's vision for the world. And it's our vision too here at Church Hill. But how do you describe the end? Well, to understand the revelation, we need to understand that the book is written in a genre, a type of literature called apocalyptic. The intention of apocalyptic is to reveal truth, not to hide it, to make sense of life, not to confuse you or jumble it up, to provoke thought, clarity of thought, to lift your eyes up to the grandest vision of them all, beyond what you can see, hear, taste, touch and smell. The English word revelation is the translation of the Greek word apocalypsis, which doesn't mean chaotic disaster at the end. This is what you get when you Google apocalyptic. No, the word means to reveal something that you can't get from the mere observable. Six things you need to know about apocalyptic language. First, it's weird. Yes, it is. Second, it's highly symbolic. Third, it's emotive. It's meant to reach out and grab you from the page. Fourth, it quotes heavily and loosely from the Old Testament, drawing on the mega story. Fifth, it's like a code for those in the know, those who are suffering. Romans who knock on your door and look at it will just laugh at you. And sixth, you're not meant to get stuck in the details. <laughs> I believe the closest thing we have to apocalyptic language in Australia is a Michael Lunig cartoon, like this one. Let me read it to you. I'm not agreeing with the content, just the style. Let it go, let it out, let it all unravel, let it free, and it can be a road on which to travel. Look at that. 
It's weird. A part is coming from his brain. It symbolises something, a journey. It's emotive, although there are more emotive lunig cartoons. You're certainly not supposed to get stuck in the detail. I mean, a literalist would say, how can he walk if his brain is spilling out? And some people get Michael Lunig cartoons, and there's lots of people who don't. Revelation is similar in type, weird, symbolic, emotive pictures, all designed to communicate and to help you and me and those in the first century to stand firm till the end, which is what Jesus said, the one who stand firms, the one who stands firm till the end will be saved. But not everyone will get it. So third and finally, how then to stand firm till the end? Well, first, we need to drink living water for the journey. We need to drink deeply of God's spirit now. We need to press into God for the thirsty. There will be water. Of course, drink regular water now. Go to the doctor, live life in this world. But in the Revelation, there's this promise to those who are hungry, to those who are thirsty, that they'll eat and drink. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Revelation reveals itself to the thirsty, not to the mere curious holding a calculator and a calendar. And Revelation certainly doesn't reveal itself to the cynical. No, God uses the book of Revelation to reveal himself to those who are suffering, to those who are thirsty for more, for something from God. So thirst after God, need him more, need him more than water. And if you find yourself without a thirst for God and the future he's promised, then perhaps even strangely, ask God to make you thirsty. Ask, Jesus said, and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Jesus is speaking about giving his Holy Spirit to those who call on him. Second, some of you are really troubled about the world we live in. So for the troubled, there's peace of mind. The issue in Revelation is a simple one. If the gospel really is true, if Jesus Christ is really Lord, then why the muck? Why cancer? Why does Rome put us to the sword if Jesus is Lord and not Caesar? If I can put it this way, why Afghanistan? Why the pandemic? Why, abu- why does abuse continue? Why is there death in the world? Back in Revelation 4 and 5, the Revelation 4 and 5 are beautiful chapters, regularly studied. Revelation 4, God is on the throne and worthy to be praised because he created all things. In Revelation 5, the lamb is on the throne with his blood he purchased men and women for God and he's worthy, we're told, to open the scrolls which are opened in chapter 6 and 7. Chapter 6 and 7 are rarely opened. But Revelation 4 and 5 makes sense of chapter 6 and 7 where the junk is described, the junk you and I experience, the troubling stuff. And the point of Revelation 4 to 7 is that Jesus Christ is Lord even with the troubles. 
Indeed, in some sense, he's in charge of the mess, enacting a judgment. So be at peace in the mess, the end is still to come. But thirdly, there's a warning for those who belong to Babylon, there is destruction. You say, well, I don't belong to Babylon, I'm an Aussie. Stay with me. John ends the book with the fall of Babylon and the installation of the new Jerusalem. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. She's become a, a dwelling for demons, a haunt for every evil spirit. Hallelujah, you see. It's gone. Well, the ancient city of Babylon is long gone by the writing of the book of Revelation. But of those suffering Roman persecution at the end of the first century, Babylon is a symbol of all that's wrong in the world. It actually begins in Genesis chapter 11 with the Tower of Babel. Babylon is a secret symbol of Rome. You do not want to be found as a member of Babylon rather than a member of the New Jerusalem. That is a person who is simply tied to the here and now, getting what you want from the world and not caring about God or not bending the knee to the one God has made Messiah over all. We don't want to be like the kings of the earth, like the nations who have drunk the maddening wine of Babylon's adulteries. The merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. You do not want to be found on the wrong side of history, fattening yourself with luxuries. You don't want to be found outside of Christ. To reject God is to inevitably experience what the book of Revelation calls the second death. How do you stand firm? With this warning in mind, anyone whose name is not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Now this is imagery, like the New Jerusalem language is imagery, but it's imagery describing a reality, the reality of God's just judgment. But it's a reality that's avoidable through the tender mercy of God, through the grace and salvation of our God. Because we get this invitation in the book of Revelation to return to God, to return from an exile, to return home. A bit like the prodigal son returning home. We come out from the muck of the world and yet when we do, we find ourselves not just returning to the father or to his home where there is feasting and dancing, that will be enough. But even more than that, God has something planned to place us in a whole new world, a new heavens and a new earth. That's the promise. That's the end. That's why Jesus quoted Psalm 37, a Psalm of David, when he said, the meek shall inherit the earth. And so the good news is, for those who belong to the new Jerusalem, there is hope, abiding hope. This is good news for the meek who are waiting for God. George Bernard Shaw said, only on paper has humanity yet achieved glory, beauty, truth, knowledge, virtue, and abiding love. Correct. But the future has all of this because it has God. And the city in Revelation 21, the New Jerusalem, is laden with Eden language. That's from stop one. A river and a tree of life, walking with God, no longer there being no longer any curse. And if you stand firm until the end, then this is your future. Thirst for it. That's called faith. God loves you 
trusting him despite the opposition. And lastly, for those who have lost the tune, there is a new song. Twice in Revelation comes this idea of singing a new song. This sense that what you are believing is not old, but profoundly new. Not stale, but fresh. Not dead, but alive. I want to be alive to God, singing a new song. Paul Tripp wrote, Waiting will always reveal where you have placed your hope. Where have you placed your hope? Your heart is always exposed by the way you wait. And so it's time. It's time to recalibrate your heart if you find yourself stale and to lift your eyes up to the things yet unseen. And so we wait like the people in the mega story, leaning forward, singing something new in our hearts, the song of redemption. The kids this morning finished kids' church and they finished their teaching in the mega story with the words of Sally Lloyd-Jones' book, the Jesus Storybook Bible, and I want to finish the same way. For anyone who says yes to Jesus, for anyone who believes what Jesus said, for anyone who will just reach out and take it, then God will give them this this wonderful gift to be born into a whole new life, to be who they really are, who God always made them to be, their own true selves, God's dear child. Because, you see, the most wonderful thing about this mega story is it's your story too. Yes, Maranatha, come Lord.